I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but, but that he had also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. That's the word of the Lord. So today's, uh, the, the message that I want to share with all of us is, what is uh, maturity? What is spiritual or what is Christian maturity? And so uh, Sam encourages me to include as many anecdotes and stories as much as possible so it's relatable. And so for me personally, when I was growing up, uh, I had a certain image in my mind of uh, an ideal man or you know, what does it mean to be a guy, right? And so many of us, I'm sure, have similar experiences uh, growing up in elementary school. Uh, one of our teachers, I'm sure, would have asked us, uh, what do you want to be when you grow up? Or who do you want to be like? Or who do you, who's your role model? And there are a lot of different answers to these questions. Uh, but these usually address things like uh, a job or our physicality, our intellect, our beauty, uh, how dynamic we are, or our charisma. Uh, even those who aspire to be like their mothers or their fathers, uh, they might be drawn to um, different things that they're capable of, like the ability to fix things, or their athleticism, or how they can manage money, or how they have influence over others. For me, it was Clint Eastwood and his cowboy character. <laughs> Don't laugh. Uh, he usually didn't have a name. There's actually a movie with him that says, a man with no name. Uh, but he didn't need one because his persona spoke everything. He was cool, he was manly, he was rustic, he was brave, he had a sense of moral injustice. He was also a bit of a loner, which somehow drew me in. I'm not sure why, but uh, I was also drawn to a lot of other characters like this take Batman, Wolverine, very similar in, in personal traits, uh, but these are personality traits. 
and we hardly ever address the issue of maturity, which is character. You know, when we think about Batman, his alter ego is Bruce Wayne, who's basically this uh, philanthropic playboy, right? You know, he just goes around and do what, does whatever he wants. Uh, Wolverine, he's brave and he's a hero, but he kills people, he has anger issues. <laughs> you know, we don't talk about those things, right? Uh, so maturity is not usually associated uh, with when we assess the people that we look up to. And today, in the 21st century, the situation is much more complex. Uh, our sense of identity, whether it's a, a male or a female, it's even more diverse and more muddled. Um, and it's clear that Paul, in this passage, has something else in mind when he's writing to the churches in Ephesus of what they ought to aspire to. And we're going to look at them now and see how we've been misguided and misled by the standards of the world against God's standards and his expectations of his church. It's appropriate that we think about this passage as our community group is in full gear and we consider why we go to community group. Uh, many people, most of us go to community groups for leisure, to see friends, to catch up. Uh, those whom we haven't seen you know, throughout the weeks. Uh, and we talk about a lot of different things that go on in our daily lives, you know, whether it's how our babies are growing up, uh, where we want a vacation, what's the new place to eat, things to do, and things like that. These are not bad things. You know, it's great that we have time to catch up. But if all we engage in are these things and not move into a time of deep prayer and teaching with one another, it kind of remains as surface talk. And we don't give ourselves the opportunity to grow together. And so we certainly are not doing ourselves a favor by not addressing these tough issues. So when we look at what Paul wrote, I hope it becomes clear that we are not meant to remain where we are, but to grow and to mature spiritually. And that happens by understanding who we are individually and corporately and how we ought to live that out, and how that affects us as a church. Uh, so before I be continue, let us pray. Lord, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for just another week of uh, your provisions, your blessings, the way that you have given us all things, uh, that we may live into Christ. Lord, we thank you that we have the privilege of coming together on a Sunday to worship together as one body. Lord, may our hearts, our minds, and our spirits uh, be united in Christ. May we think of one thing. May we desire one thing. That is you, Lord. We thank you, Lord, and we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. So understanding who we are as individuals and corporate. So uh, you might hear around the church water cooler that today we lost our prophetic voice uh, and when we look around the news and see the church's response to a lot of social issues it's easy to see how we lost our influence especially when we see a lot of uh, division and infighting even within the church and this happens not because God is not working through the church but because we've forgotten our identity and heritage or we simply don't know what a church is supposed to be. We might have a very generic idea of what a church is. It's 
could be a, a building that we meet on a Sunday, maybe occasionally on a Wednesday or a Friday. But, the, but Paul hits the Ephesians on his head, on their head of who they are supposed to be by pointing them to their calling. Now, this might seem a little confusing, uh, but I want to unpack um, what Paul means by calling. And he says in verse 1, I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. So first, Paul says we are called to a calling. So what is calling and how are we called? When I ask you, what is your calling? Uh, or what are you called to? You might give an answer along the lines of, I'm called to be a banker, and I'm called to be a software engineer, a teacher, whatever. Uh, or I'm called to a mission field. I'm called to this or that ministry. And to a degree, I would agree with you, but it's only a partial answer because these things that we're listing are vocational callings. This is vastly different from our life calling. The kind of calling that we understand is from a worldly point of view. The dictionary defines calling like this. A calling is a life's work, a mission, and purpose and function that is worthy and requiring great dedication. So it's easy to see how we apply the word calling to our jobs. But if we see the nuance that Paul uh, places on calling, we're quite far off because he doesn't associate calling to our place of employment. What I mean is this, when we, let's look at the text, it says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. If you have a pen or a highlighter, you should highlight, urge you to walk in a manner worthy. The type of calling Paul is pointing attention to is not what we do, but who we are. He's affirming to the readers of their identity. Now, if you say that your calling is a banker, do you walk in the manner of a banker? Uh, maybe you wear a fancy suit, a tie, nice shoes, and a swagger, maybe? Uh, that's your identity. Uh, how about a software engineer? You know, back in the day, it used to be a guy with a pocket protector and really thick rim glasses. Today, it might be a guy with skinny jeans, a, a patterned shirt, or something like that, and that's his identity. But could be just as confused as a barista. Uh, but none of these professions dictate how you're supposed to walk in this life. For us, it's not about what we wear, where we work, what position we hold, but we're called to walk in a certain manner that is worthy of something. Paul, he used the word calling with an intention and a direction and that intention and direction is for us to be a new society for God as one people and a holy people. He attributes our calling as our place of, in the community of worship. So there's a huge difference between the way we see calling, which is doing something, and the way that Paul is speaking, which is to be something. So to put together Paul's emphasis on our calling to be the church and the, the dictionary definition of a calling, we can put it this way. The one body of church becomes our life's work. It becomes our mission, our purpose and function. 
and we are to regard it as worthy that requires great dedication. So attaining this one body is such a worthwhile cause for God that he gave his one and only son for it. So it ought to be a worthwhile cause for us too. But we must be aware that it's not by our own efforts that we achieve this unity. Our calling and purpose is to live as a unified body because our God is one. When we look at verses four to six, he says, he, God, is one spirit, one Lord, and one God and Father. He emphasizes the one body and one spirit, the one Lord with one faith and one baptism, and the one God and Father of all. John Stott explains it like this. He says, the Father creates the one family. Through the one Lord, we have one faith, one baptism, and one hope. And the Spirit creates the one body. So what does it mean? It means that we, when we came into faith in Jesus Christ, we are automatically brought into the unity of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, who works together to create a one church. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are one. They're inseparable in thought, will, desire. Therefore, there is only one church. And this is it. This is our one church, our universal church. It's our one and only heavenly, eternal family. So our calling is to be the church that is the family God created. And I want to tell you why we must walk in a worthy manner. So we talked about calling, which is our identity as a church. Next, what are we called? And the word called in this form can be used in different ways. Uh, one is to call someone aloud or call someone to invite, to call by saluting one's name or to call to give a name. And it seems to me in this context uh, that our calling is to be the church. Our next logical question is, who meets at a church? It's believers, right? It's Christians. It's those who are seeking Christ. And the call here evokes a sense of being given a new name that's Christian. It's like when God changes Abram's name to Abraham. God says to Abraham, no longer shall you, your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham, for I have made you the father of multitude of nations. God takes Abram's former self and gives him a new identity to live by as the father of multitude of nations. And so we can apply this to ourselves because Paul, in the previous chapter, he gives the Gentiles a, a new status as adopted children into God's household. And I want to quickly point out to you that Paul says we are called in this past tense. He's, he doesn't say we will be called. He's, it's we are already called into God's house. It was instantaneous on the day you accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior. You are accepted as sons and daughters of God. There's nothing else that we have to work toward to be sons and daughters. Think the prodigal son. For the Gentiles, it's culturally significant. So here's a quick history lesson. In the Jewish culture, there is no process of adoption. Upon the death of a man, his brother the oldest brother, assumes the headship of the family of the deceased brother. But on the other hand, in the Roman culture, the biological son was actually more at risk of losing his sonship uh, when his 
parents disown him for a variety of different reasons, but those who are adopted, they're freely chosen by the parents, meaning the parents desired them to be in their house, and they cannot be disowned once they're adopted. And so this analogy has a deep meaning, a deep impact uh, that fills the hearts of the Gentile Christians. They're no longer Gentiles who are rejected, but sons and daughters in the house of Israel. Paul emphasizes the same way in a lot of his other epistles. In Galatians, he says, there's neither Jew nor, Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. This is great news for all of us because we were once Gentiles too. So I'm going to speak from my Korean background. Before the gospel was brought to Korea, our ancestors uh, went to shamans to buy their luck or good fortune or to ward off evil spirits. They also had Confucian values that drove them toward good work, moral behavior, and they valued a hyper-hierarchical society for social order. Uh, and we see a lot of that still today. But after the gospel, we too are neither slave nor free, nor female, male. We all become one in Christ Jesus. And think about what that means. That means we're adopted in union with Christ. And when we are in union with Christ, that means we're a new creation. We shed our former selves because he has already done it. And we can now adopt this new self. Our status and our condition are changed. Our legal status is altered as God's children. And we, have, and we can experience God's favor and receive all the blessings of sonship. We don't have to view the world as this unknown spiritual force that is out to get us if we don't do good. We have a trustworthy and a loving God who desires to give good things to his children. And as adopted children, we receive the best gift of all, which is forgiveness and embrace. And then we're given the power to forgive others so that we don't hold on to grudges and allow those feelings to eat away at us. We're not ravaged by our cultural baggage because in Christ, there's nothing that makes us deficient. We receive God's fatherly care, and he provides unlimited resources. And because of Christ's work of redemption on the cross, we have all of God's kindness without any of the judgment. What an amazing God. What an amazing news. Isn't this worth coming into his family for? Hence, shouldn't we desire to walk more in a manner of being called his sons and daughters? And so Paul breaks down how it is that we ought to walk in a worthy manner. It seems pretty straightforward. He says, we are to walk with humility, gentleness, patience, and bear with one another in love. And I say relatively easy or straightforward because often we neglect those things or we do them improperly. When we say uh, we walk with humility and gentleness and patience, it's actually timidity and niceties and courteousness and uh, saving face, as we call it in Asian culture. We don't say certain things when we're with one another because we're afraid that 
if we say this one thing, it might offend the other, and uh, he or she might get mad, and I don't want to you know, make them mad. Personally, um, I fear probing into somebody else's life uh, because I don't want to make myself or the other person feel uncomfortable or awkward, especially if it's like a bad situation. But God desires spiritually mature people, and that means breaking out of this cultural mold. It means the cultural mold of you can't say that or you can't ask that. It's so rude. Now, it doesn't mean that we have this uh, utmost freedom to say whatever we want. You know, it's, I'm not saying to the husbands, to the wives, to say, yes, those pants do make your rear end look big. You know, that's not what we ought to say. <laughs> or, you know, if we're in a group setting, you know, we also shouldn't say, that was such a dumb thing to say, even as a joke. Because when we joke, it builds insecurities. And it prohibits us from being our authentic selves. There's still this gen- uh, element of gentleness and kindness, but not brute honesty or caustic jokes. And when the me- body of the when the body is built up, and every member experiences security in one another through encouragement and exhortation, there can be honesty and rebuke because we can acknowledge with one another that we are sincere in our approach. We're not trying to tear one another down. It turns, it gives us opportunities to talk about a lot of difficult issues, whether it's body image issues, anger issues, depression, sorrows, personal struggles, marriage, children issues. We have genuine confession with one another and healing. And we can pray together about those things that we would experience freedom from such uh, weighty things that we can't handle. I want to share with you something that I share with my community group. My dad has anger issues, uh, and I think it's gotten better lately, but it still persists. A lot of you might be able to sympathize if you have a Korean parent or an Asian parent. Um, Now, because of the Asian culture of saving face, there is not much talk about this issue at their church, as far as I know. Uh, having gone to my parents' church numerous times in the past, never once have I heard a sermon about anger. And it seems as though they just kind of accept it, you know, shrug it off, and regard it as cultural normality. And if they can't address it in a sermon, they likely won't address it in a small group setting. But the small group setting is exactly where we ought to address these things, where we can feel comfortable and secure to share our shortcomings and to be able to point out where we are falling short. Again, not in a judgmental tone, but out of humility, knowing that we too fall short of the glory of God. With gentleness, so as not to shame the other person. And with patience, knowing that these changes don't come overnight, but through concerted effort and prayer. This is what bearing with one another in love and community looks like. It builds a body of trust that's motivated by Christ's love. And I pray that my parents have dependable and mature people at their church 
to unveil these cultural demons that they just sweep under the rug so that they can receive true and genuine and powerful freedom in Christ. Uh, finally, I like the, the phrase in verse 13, until we all attain. It has a, a sense of it's all or nothing. Until we all attain this one thing, this one thing being Christ, it's all Christ or all the world, but we can't have both. And because we are one family of God, we desire to leave no one behind. The Marines have this phrase, no man left behind. That ought to be the motto for the church. We should desire to see that every member of our house would not fall into the traps and false wisdoms of the world. It also has a sense of incompleteness and endurance. It's until, not already. Unlike adoption, which is immediate, our maturing takes time. And it's from a corporate perspective. Until we all attain this unity, we are going to keep working at it because we haven't achieved it yet. Until we all attain the knowledge of the Son of God, we are going to keep working at it. There's persistence and perseverance. There is no giving up in this phrase. And we are to do this by bearing with one another in love. Be eager to maintain the unity with love. By caring and supporting one another, we are to hold up and bolster one another. So I work at a, a climbing gym near my parents' house. And it's a, it's a fantastic community. I've never met uh, such more encouraging group of people than the climbing community. Um, they are so supported. It doesn't matter if I'm climbing like, I don't know, the children's wall, you know? They're still willing to give like shout outs. You're like, <laughs> you're doing great. Or hey, grab that one or put your feet over there, you know? And like every time I level up and I'm able to do a, a, a more challenging one that I couldn't do last week, they're so supportive. They're like, dude, that's awesome. I'm like, yeah, but you're like a V5. I'm a V1, you know? They're like, yeah, but you improved so much. It's like, it's not like, it's not a babying supporting, you know? It's, it's a genuine supportive, uh, supporting because they were there too. They were at that one point at V0 and could not do this one hold. You know, there's nobody who's arrogant enough to say, gosh, you can't do that. Um, and that's the type of encouragement and support that we ought to have when we are bearing one another with love. It's, if you're the one who is stronger in faith, it's understanding the humbleness of Christ to put yourself at the bottom, to carry the one who is weaker in faith on your shoulders. The world tells us conflicting things, but nothing should come between us and the unity of the church. So what does godly spiritual person and church look like? You know, I actually, it's not me. The Holy Spirit just revealed it to me as I was just singing. And I'm trying to make, you know, finish my point. I'm like, what, what is a spiritual person? <laughs> um, and it's to go from spiritual infancy to spiritual maturity is to understand that we have to go, we must go from individual perspective to a corporate perspective. 
if we remain in our individuality, we remain as a child. You know, and a lot of us with infants, when you look at your child, what do they want the most? <laughs> whatever they want the most, right? It's not whatever the brother wants or the sister wants or their friend wants, it's whatever they want first. And so unless we can move into, in our hearts, an area where our primary focus is to look out for one another, we remain as a child. And as members of God's family, it must be our life's mission, our purpose to maintain and fight for the unity of the family. And if we are now adopted sons and daughters in God's house, that makes him our father. And what makes our father's joy complete? Uh, my earthly dad, his joy will be complete if and when I get married, have kids, so that he can have grandkids, which is great <laughs> when that happens. But, you know, God takes pleasure in infants and children too, of course. You know, he calls them blessings. But his joy, it's complete when he sees the unity of his body with Christ as a head. And he gives us all the necessary spiritual gifts so that we can achieve the unity of the body. So let us make our Father glad by seeking the unity in the church, in, this, in our community groups, in our church, by practicing humility, patience, gentleness, and love. May our sonship and daughtership into God's house be the ultimate reality so that we're not living according to the desires of the world, but living our lives with an in eternal inheritance. Let us pray.